Hi, welcome everybody to this edition of the What's Next podcast, where I'm thrilled to welcome David Schonthal to the show today. He is an award-winning professor of strategy, innovation, and entrepreneurship at the Kellogg School of Management. In addition to his teaching, he also serves as the director of entrepreneurship programs at Kellogg and the faculty director of the Zell Fellow Program. But he's also one of the originators of friction theory, which I can't wait to talk about. It's a groundbreaking methodology that explains why even the most promising innovations and change initiatives often struggle to gain traction with their intended audiences and what to do about it. This work is popularized in David's best-selling book, The Human Element, which has just come out. He's been honored on uh, Chicago Business Magazine as 40 under 40, back when he was under 40. I feel that way. <laughs> I feel that way, man. They did like a list over 50. I'm like, how did I make this list? Anyway, and is currently a Distinguished Achievement Award finalist for Thinkers 50, which I happen to also be a member of, and is a VC. So welcome to the show, David. Thanks. I don't know how long you can have that 40 under 40 thing on your bio before it's just inappropriate, but I'm going to ride that wave as long as I can. I say as long as you're in your 40s. Yeah, well, then, then, I'm, then I'm still there. Yeah, you got 10 years. <laughs> I, I feel like 10 years is is appropriate. All right, so let's get into it. I always start off the show with uh, something I call bullish and bearish. Uh, bullish is you're for it. Bearish is you are not for it. Um, are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, the first one. Artificial intelligence coming up with new ideas. Bullish or bearish? Bearish. Oh, Oh, I didn't think you were going to say that. Okay, now we're going to talk about it. Okay, the next one. Experimentation and failure is a good thing. Bear, uh, bullish. <laughs> I'm like, oh God, wait I a forgot, minute. I forgot, I forgot <laughs> which animal I was supposed to choose. Bullish. <laughs> bullish is the good one, right? <laughs> yes. All right, David. Shoo. Okay, the third one. <laughs> the third one, being a triplet. Oh, super bullish. There you go. So if you didn't guess, David is a triplet. So we'll... uh... David just has a thing for multiple births. (laughs) There you go. All right. Well, let's get into it. I always sort of start at the beginning of what what led you to the topic of the human element? Because you've spent 20 years as kind of a practitioner at IDEO on design thinking. You've been a VC. You still are. You're a professor and educator. What led you to saying, you know what? This is the time to write something about the human element. Yeah. Um, and I should note that this was a collaborative effort between myself and my co-author, Lauren Nordgren, who's also on the faculty at the Kellogg School. Lauren is a psychologist uh, by background, and I'm an entrepreneur and innovation person by background. But both of us were uh, puzzled by the same problem, which is why is it that clearly good ideas or clearly new innovations or clearly new good movements or, or strategies fail to get traction or or get acceptance by the intended audience they're designed to serve. And surely there's another way of looking at this than just there's something wrong with the product or something wrong with the idea. What is the other side of the equation? What is it that the human beings that we're trying to affect have to say about change and innovation? And let's dig into that. And the result is this book. I am not a product designer. So I, I like to say I'm a sales and marketing exec uh, recovering because I no longer do that for a living, but I did in technology for almost 20 years. Right. So I would sell these products, people designed in some back room and I'd be like, okay, I'm out here talking to customers all the time and I never hear that they need this, right. Or Mm -hmm. that that one feature was going to solve world peace for them. And so 
this was many years ago, 15 years ago. I feel like we've made a lot of progress of not designing products that nobody maybe actually needed or wanted. <laughs> Why do you think, if you agree, you know, we went from that kind of backroom innovation to much more customer-driven human innovation? What, what do you think the catalyst of that was? I mean, I think there were a few elements that led to that, I think. Um, number one, if you look at what happened at the end of the dot-com era, I think there was the the roads of Silicon Valley were littered with the carcasses of businesses that didn't do anything for people that people knew they wanted. And so I think there was a big lesson learned on the importance of product market fit. Like you can't just create a great enterprise by designing something cool and hoping people find a way to integrate that into their life. You have to approach it a little bit more bottoms up. And I think people like Steve Blank uh, and Eric Reese in like the earlier part of the, the, the late two, well, earlier part of the late 2000s, somewhere around 2008, 2009, uh, started to popularize the lean startup movement, which was a different way of looking at customer discovery and customer development around the same time that design thinking became more popularized. And all of these movements are starting with the problem first and not the product first. And I think since then, I hope that since then, we've trained a whole bunch of innovators to be problem focused instead of product focused. Because if you're product focused, you tend to fall in love with the thing and then constantly try to find a market or constantly try to tell the world that this thing is a great thing and they should adopt it. When we're problem focused, we're much more open to the feedback of the people we're designing for. And we adjust our solutions to reflect the progress they desire to make as opposed to the inverse. So I think the last 10 years has been this switch in mentality from product orientation to prog progress orientation. Yeah. And I think jobs to be done, you know, love it. You're not, they're not buying a drill, they're buying a quarter inch hole. I actually right. think that didn't go far enough. I think it, I'm not like, I'm not going to drill a hole in the wall and go, oh my God, isn't that a beautiful hole in the wall? Like I'm going to hang a shelf or I'm going to build right. a desk. I mean, so it, it, it kind of stopped one step before that kind of outcome, if you will, you know, that the job to be done, which I think is a great anchoring point that is now getting a lot more coverage and usage yeah. than I think it ever has before. Yeah, no, you're right. It's the in order to what, right? So the whole in order to put a light fixture, in order to do what? Well, and because I want to read in that corner. In order to do what? Well, it's a beautiful part of my house that I don't get to spend any time when, well, there's a bunch of different ways I can solve that problem for you, some of which is obviously a drill, but uh, I think you're right. I think the root cause of people's desire and the progress they want to make is usually four or five levels below uh, what they would otherwise tell you. And do you think, you know, that I, it, I'm a huge fan of this kind of being a master asker, right? Asking the why, why, why kind of three or four times to say, right, I want to, why well, I mm. use that space. I want to read a book. Well, why, why, you know, and getting mm. to that. But not everybody, leaders, individuals spend enough time in that customer segment, you know, the population of the customer. And I'm going to use customer as a very broad term. The customer mm. could be an employee. The customer could be a customer. The customer could be a channel partner, right? A distributor, a could yeah. be a supply chain. Like, so I'm using customer very all encompassing. Yeah. Mm. You know, and I feel like uh, undercover boss is a great example of that failure <laughs> because I'm always like, how could you ever as a leader not know that's what go was going on in your business? I never realized people thought our food was terrible. I mean, like, what? <laughs> right, yeah. Hey, everybody, let's make better tasting food. <laughs> like, uh, where have you been? You know, managing yeah. my business from spreadsheets in my sort right. of four walls, right? So that kind of, you know, a la Tom Peters management, why wandering around, which was really an HP thing 50 or 60 years ago. Um, 
you know, that, that disconnection between that customer is, is real. That's kind of number one, but number two, then you have someone like a Steve jobs who is absolutely an outlier. And that company is an outlier. You, and he famously said, you can't ask customers what they want because they don't know what they want. And sometimes people will fall between this, which one? And I always say, you know, listen, Steve Jobs, that is a very unique unicorn. You can't base yourself on how many companies have been able to sort of do that. Yeah. Although I I guess I would just sort of qualify the Steve Jobs because this comes up a lot, right? People are like, well, Steve Jobs and Henry Ford said that my customer doesn't know what they want. And I think that it's true in the literal sense that your customer would have a hard time saying, I want a device that stores digital music in my pocket. Like they couldn't give you the specifications of the product, but customers are pretty good at telling you the progress they're trying to make. Or the job to be done. Right. Going back to jobs, right. And Bob Mesta and and Clay Christensen and like people can tell you the job. It's your job as the innovator to trace the reality of today with the future that you're trying to invent for them. So while they can't tell you how to invent the product, they can definitely tell you what they're hoping to accomplish. Yeah, when the pandemic first hit, our co-CEO now, Mark Benioff, who's the founder of Salesforce. I've heard of him. Yeah, for those of you who don't know who he is. um, He gave us a challenge. At the time, we didn't have Slack. So we hadn't made the acquisition for Slack yet. So let's call it 55,000 employees-ish. We were right around there. And he said, I want us to have 1 million conversation with customers. So it wasn't 1 million sales calls, 1 million demos, RFP responses. Like it was 1 million conversations. We're going to capture that. We're going to understand what are the quote unquote jobs to be done, the outcomes, the progress that our customers want to make without them saying, right, I want something in my pocket to store 10 million phones or 10 million songs, Hmm. right, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's not what they're going to say. And we uncovered these kind of big three categories that they were feeling they needed progress in. Mm-hmm. So we kind of rearranged product roadmap. We launched a new product called work.com. You know, like we did a lot of things to help them get back to the office safely. And now we've launched safety cloud all on that progress of what people were trying to solve, but didn't know how to ask for it. And so mm-hmm. that goes back to that, you know, that, beginner's mind mentality, the openness to say, what is it that I need to ask and really asking the right questions in the right forum, capturing it and doing something with it. That sounds super easy on a PowerPoint slide, super difficult to execute on. Without question. I mean, it's what we're really talking about is people thinking like anthropologists and it takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of practice uh, to, to stay in the question long enough and to stay in the, the the discovery process long enough to arrive at these insights and qualitative research is much more time consuming than quantitative research and we tend to rely a lot on data sets to make decisions these days but but what i would generally i believe and, and i'm not sure if you agree tiffany or not but data is pretty good at telling us what is going on but it often never tells us why and if we're trying to be good innovators the why is the essential part and I need to know the causal relationships between things. What causes somebody to do A, B, and C? Not that they do A, B, and C, but what causes them to do A, B, and C? Because I'm a 45-year-old guy who lives in the suburbs of Chicago does not make me go to Chipotle. It could be that a lot of 45-year-olds in the suburbs of Chicago go to Chipotle. That's correlative information. But if I'm trying to make an impact and design things that mean something to people, I need to know the causal relationships. Well, I think you said something there that, you know, we toss around a lot of words and and I I will tell you, you know, I give a lot of keynotes as I'm sure you do too. And I 
now, since everything we did around those million conversations, jobs to be done is part of every presentation because it allows people to just very quickly understand why am I telling them all this information? Because I need to ground them in the context, which is mm -hmm. what is the job to be done? Mm -hmm. what, what are you trying to solve? Secondarily, secondarily to that, though, is the concept of design thinking, which I also think is really misunderstood. Like when I interviewed Steve Blank and others, right, it was it's something that it's very innate to you. But not everybody understands what that even means, how to even approach it, what's the value and power of doing that kind of jobs to be done, design thinking, minimal viable product. I mean, when people hear those things, it doesn't it doesn't land with everyone unless you're, you know, kind of live in Silicon Valley. Um, yeah. So how would you describe those things? Let's start with kind of design thinking and then uh, uh, minimal viable product. Yeah, I mean, design thinking and to the to, to a large extent, lean startup are all about, well, design thinking is a way of solving problems. It's not the act of design. It's a way of solving problems specifically by putting the needs of people first. And just like in lean startup, the beginning of the design process is heavily weighted on customer understanding and customer research. And to your point earlier, customer can be an economic customer, it can be an end user, it can be a channel partner. But anybody who you're trying to create benefit for with the thing that you're producing, you need to understand them, not just at the functional level, which is, I think, where a lot of companies spend their time, but also the social and emotional level. And it doesn't matter if you're in B2B or B2C or B2B2C or whatever. At the end of every product or at the end of every process or at the end of every strategy as a human being. And make no mistake, they have functional needs, but many of us hire products and services for the social and emotional value they give us. And I think that to do design thinking properly and to practice lean properly, you need to understand all three of those dimensions of value, social, functional, and emotional. Um, minimum viable product and prototyping in the design process are somewhat similar, which is how do I embody my question in a way that I can put out into the world to find out if the thing I believe is true is actually true. It's really easy for somebody to sit in a meeting or a focus group which I have strong opinions about, but in a meeting or a focus group and tell you what they're going to do in the future. But it's very different than if you actually put things in front of them, devices, products, services, screen map, uh, roadmaps, whatever it might be, and get people to react to real stimulus. And I think minimum viable products are one of the best examples of that, which is how can we actually deliver the value proposition? Maybe it doesn't scale, but how can we deliver the value proposition to the market such that we can actually gave their, gauge their authentic willingness to pay? Nothing says I'm interested more than somebody putting money on the table and saying I'm willing to buy it. But a lot of tech firms over-design and over-engineer and over-program when the answer of are you willing to pay for it or not is a fairly inexpensive one to figure out if you're willing to just hack it together in a manual way. Well, thank you for that, because I think it's extremely helpful to ground everybody in what the terms mean, because, you know, unless you're going to spend five or 10 minutes, go listen to a TED talk from Steve or a podcast or something else, right? Or read Lean Startup, um, you know, you're sort of going, I don't, I don't know what all this means. So let's pivot for a second um, to, you know, why you're here. And what By the way, nice use of the word pivot if we're talking about Lean Startup, which yep. is another. <laughs> listen, I've done this a few times. <laughs> you, you've, you've got this one dialed in. All right. So is the human side of it. So there's two things. One, I won my bullish and bearish. I said, AI coming up with new ideas, you were bearish. So I'd love to just tick that one off really quick. Why is it that you think you're not for it? I don't know, because again, going back to the data can tell you what, but it can't tell you why. I think AI 
is basically just a way of processing data to make predictions. And I think that, that a lot of those relationships are correlative. And if I'm trying to create something really meaningful and creative and useful for people, it's that qualitative why underneath the data, the emotional and the social stuff that I don't know that an AI or an algorithm can tell me. There may come a point in time where you know, we're in the singularity and I can't tell the difference between a human and a machine, but where we <laughs> sit right now, I think AI can flag things of interest, but it probably can't dig into the level of detail that I need to come up with a truly creative and differentiated solution. All right, fair enough. Now let's let's go to human. So the human element. And I mm. think that you know everything is about at the end of every product, at the end of every purpose, uh, purchase, at the end of every decision, you know, it is is a human. Mm-hmm. There's going to be technology along the way, obviously, um, because I, I believe in the power of human and tech, not tech alone, uh, not human alone. So what what is the human element in this kind of um, figuring out the promise of innovation to delivering upon it and then continuing its sort of you know, scale, if you will. Yeah. Um, So we wrote this book and it's called The Human Element very specifically because oftentimes the things that stand in the way of a new idea or adoption of a new idea are the very people we're trying to help. And it sounds sort of paradoxical. Why would the very people we're trying to make their lives better say no to the thing that's going to make their lives better? And this is where Lauren and I, him with his psychology background and me with my innovation background, really tried to dig in to uncover what are these forces of opposition to change? What are these forces of opposition to new ideas? And in the book, we've identified four what we call frictions that stand in the way of any new idea getting adopted into the world. The first of these frictions is something we refer to as inertia. Inertia is a human being's overwhelming tendency to stick with the status quo, despite the fact that the new idea or the new strategy or the new approach might be leagues better than what they're doing we underestimate just how strong the tug of the status quo is in our lives. And so inertia is something we have to face effort, how much physical, mental, economic exertion is required in order to adopt this new thing into our lives. I work a lot in the healthcare space, the healthcare technology space. And I oftentimes have engineers or software designers or technical founders come into the office to pitch me some new digital health tool that they're working on, which is really cool. And I'll say, this is a really neat workflow management system or whatever it might be. Tell me what's it going to take for this to be fully adopted in the clinic? And the answer is usually some version of, well, it's just going to take doctors and nurses completely changing the way they practice medicine. I'm like, in what parallel universe do you think somebody who's been doing something for a certain way for 20 years is going to automatically adjust how they work in order to adopt your thing? So inertia is a big deal, effort's a big deal. The third one, which we've talked about a little bit here is emotion. How might somebody feel threatened by our idea? How might they feel nervous about it or scared about it? Anytime we're asking somebody to do something different than what they've done in the past, there's always some degree of trepidation, however minor that might stand in the way of them saying yes. And then the fourth is something we refer to as reactance. And reactance is our aversion to being changed by others. No matter how good the idea is, if we feel like it is being pushed on us, we will push back on it with equal, if not greater force. And I don't think you have to look very far uh, on topics like global health or other things to see that in action. And so what we try to do in this book is uh, create a shared language and highlight these, these frictions that stand in the way and not only teach people how to spot them ideally in advance, but also some strategies for mitigating them so they don't stand in the way of your efforts. 
Yeah. And, and those four, yeah, I just did a post on LinkedIn a few weeks ago uh, on this very topic. Like it's not the way we do it here. (laughs) We tried it. It failed. Our culture could never absorb it. It's not what our customers want. It's not who we, you know what I mean? Like all this kind of, you know, and when the opening paragraph of my book, which came out a number of years ago, Growth IQ was literally a study from Bain that brands that were larger than 5 billion or smaller than 5 billion was kind of in the high 80% range, low 90% range, that internal inertia was the number one reason they were unable to create sustainable and repeatable growth, right? Yeah. Right? And so change is hard. And the follow-up to that was a quote from Ginny Rometty, the former uh, CEO and chairman of IBM, that she said, growth and comfort don't coexist. Like, yeah. they, just, they just don't, right? Yeah. And so with all that friction and someone listening to this going, oh, yeah, I've heard all four. I feel all four. <laughs> you know, I'm in the middle of all four. I left because it was all four. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, we've yeah. all had that moment. As an individual, what do you do? What do you do to sort of break through the human element that you may not obviously be in control of? If you're an individual contributor, the executives are making these decisions potentially. They might even be forcing it upon you, like use this technology or do it this way or whatever it might be. What's the what's the light at the end of that tunnel? Yeah. Um, I think that, well, first of all, this, the simplest answer to that question is just being able to tease apart sources of friction. I think a lot of us say, oh, I'm encountering headwind or I'm encountering friction and therefore I'm going to try a different approach or I'm going to try a different thing. By the way, the way that most innovators deal with feeling the pressure of headwinds of friction or inertia or, or effort or whatever it might be, most innovators bias is that if they're not saying yes, there's something wrong with the idea. Like I haven't explained the idea well enough, or I haven't featured the product appropriately, or I haven't priced it appropriately. They're saying no, because they don't get it, or I haven't really done a good job of selling it. So let me go back and try to change the idea and make the idea more attractive. What we try to promote in this book is that now, sometimes ideas have more than enough magnetism. It's about reducing the headwind that they face for people to say yes. And one of the things that we're hoping that innovators will take away from this work and from this theory is simply by teasing all of these different things apart and looking at them individually, you create a different understanding of the headwind than just saying, oh, people are opposed to it because the price is too high. Well, why do they think the price is too high? Is it an emotional issue? Is it an effort issue? And sometimes the things that we think are causing the most headwind aren't actually the source of the problem at all. And so we've given people a guide to arriving at the root cause of these sources of friction. And usually when you find them, the answer to address them is relatively straightforward and obvious. So this book is about identifying and spotting more than it is about like, here are all the ways to make your idea more attractive. That's not what we're doing here. Well, it's identifying. And I think one of the big things that um, gets missed in a lot of these conversations I find is someone's ability then to tell the story in a way that's compelling to change someone's mind. Hmm. So what you said was, right, well, why why aren't they liking what I've done? I, I got to rip it apart and start all over again. Mm-hmm. It could be the way it was described, presented. It could be one little adjustment versus you got to wipe the whole thing out. Um, and so... You know, it, I think that the art of storytelling, especially around data, a friend of mine, Nancy Duarte, wrote the book Data Story, which is all about how do you take all this data and tell a story that will compel people to mm-hmm. you know, make a 
decision that you're looking for them. You're kind of leading them to the water sort of mm -hmm. a thing, right? Versus just saying, here's the data, look through it, tell me what you think. I mean, that that's just not ever going to get you what you're looking for. Right. So if let's say that someone- Actually, sometimes them. your data is like the worst thing you can present, right? Like sometimes <laughs> the strongest data is the worst is the worst evidence of all. But I agree, right? So So let's say you have an idea. Like I have an idea of something, right? I'm an individual contributor. I have an idea of something we should stop doing or start doing or change how we do it. Hmm. And now I got to formulate it in a way to sort of, you know, move up the food chain, right? Go to my boss, to the boss, to the boss, to the boss, to try to get an effect change. How do you think someone can uncover whether it's just a flat out bad idea or whether it was the way it was presented or small little tweaks or pivots can actually get it to that multiple, you know, MVP yeah. and move on? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the sort of cheeky answer is the book. The book is the best thing to do. Read the book because it's all about this, right? It's all about spotting and diagnosing exactly what the source of the problem is. But, you know, one and, and bring me back on course if I'm taking this away from the nature of your question. But one of the things that, that, that we find, particularly inside of organizations, is how strong this force of reactance is. People not wanting to be told what to do by others. And one of the obvious ways to remedy this source of reactance, which is like, I'm not on board with the strategy changer. I don't want to practice my craft this way. One of the, the obvious remedies for reactance is to help people arrive at self-generated arguments, not to show up with data and say, like, look at all the evidence that supports this particular direction, but instead to engage people in a conversation that allows them to come up with the answer themselves. And some of this can be through storytelling, as you mentioned before. Maybe I want to tell you a story about something analogous that highlights this particular point. Maybe I'm going to point to uh, another individual that's experienced something similar and see if that resonates with you on a more emotional level than just looking at a data set. But what we generally find is engaging people in conversation and having them share points of view. Once they start speaking with us and once they start talking about their topic, usually they'll come up with the solution on their own. It just takes the time to, to give them that opportunity to do it. Well. And by the way, this is fun, fun, fun fact. This is how brainwashing works. So uh, if you ever wonder, like, how do people get brainwashed and what is it? The pro what's the process of brainwashing? Our overwhelming like instinct is brainwashing is the result of torture or physical discomfort. And somebody eventually relents and says yes to whatever we're doing. Uh, but a really interesting set of studies was done on American POWs in the Korean War. American POWs who were captured by the Koreans and then eventually defected to North Korea Americans back at home were saying, well, how could Americans possibly defect to North Korea? Like, what was it that the North Koreans did to them to, to get them to think so radically? And if you read the debriefs of how they wound up understanding from these soldiers when they returned to the U.S., how the brainwashing process worked, it worked like this. The first question that the North Korea uh, captors asked these soldiers was, would you agree that no government is perfect? And of course, the Americans being sensible, like, yeah, I can agree that no government is perfect. But now I've opened you up to an idea of engaging me in a conversation. And by saying yes, we are now having a conversation where you're going to start to generate some arguments that may actually bring you to the same point that I wanted you to drop off at, but you're doing it on your own. The next question is, well, if you agree that no government is perfect, you would by definition then say that your government is imperfect. Is that true? Well, yeah, sure, that's true. Tell me some ways in which your government has let you down. Someone decides to 
Now, all of a sudden, I'm inviting these POWs to start telling me their list of grievances about the government. But now it's a very different conversation than let me tell you a thing or two or about a thing or two about right. the American <laughs> government. And while this is obviously used for nefarious and, and diabolical purposes, this same methodology of leading people to self-generated arguments is extremely powerful. Well, look, we could keep going and going and going, but what I love, what I love, David, is that the answer is read the book, The Human Element. <laughs> Overcoming the resistance that awaits new ideas. That's the answer. For sure. That's the answer. That's the Say answer. no more. Say no more. Well, listen, David, this has been fantastic. How can people keep in touch with you, continue to follow your work, uh, and you know, maybe even reach out with some questions? Thanks for asking. The book has a website, humanelementbook.com. Uh, so you can find some information there, download some tools and some book excerpts. Uh, and then I've got a website, davidschonthal.com, S-C-H-O-N-T-H-A-L. It's a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> you, you can keep track of me in both of those places. Well, excellent. Well, again, David, thank you so much for joining me today on the What's Next podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you.